Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. My text for the morning is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Preaching is similar to an artist painting a picture on a blank canvas in many respects. Just as you and I, when watching an artist beginning his picture, may wonder how it's going to turn out, so when you come to hear a message from God's Word on Lord's Day morning, I'm sure that in many respects, the initial brush strokes of the sermon don't seem to make sense. You're hoping that the preacher, like the artist, has a finished picture in his mind, an idea of what it will look like when it's done. And as we come to an unfamiliar portion of Scripture like the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, there is the idea that this is a blank canvas. And I think it's important as we look at our text this morning to uh, just sort of reiterate or repeat just a bit the thrust of this book. We need to remind ourselves briefly again of the story that is here. Habakkuk was a Jewish prophet that lived about 600 years before Jesus Christ. He lived right before the Babylonian captivity, before Judah was carried to Babylon for 70 years. He's a contemporary with Jeremiah and Zephaniah, other prophets, and he announced that judgment was coming. But he announced that judgment was coming in his prophecy after he himself is perplexed at the spiritual and moral decay that he sees all around him among the people of God. Habakkuk is wondering, Lord, why are you silent? Why aren't you doing something? In chapter 1, he says, How long, O Lord, wilt thou not hear our prayers? He cries for God to intervene. And we have paralleled that in the past few times that we've been together with our experience of living in a world of immorality and ungodliness. That's certainly the case today, isn't it? Our world is a world that is in a state of chaos and disarray. And as we look around us, we cry out, Lord, how long will you remain aloof from our needs, from our prayers and our concerns for the state of society? I'm sure what Habakkuk was wanting is he was wanting God to intervene in terms of revival. When he begins to pray, Lord, how long? Why don't you do something? He wants God to come down and to change people's hearts and to turn people back to him. He's praying for revival. But God's answer to his initial prayer surprises us for God said, I am going to do something, but it's not revival. I'm bringing the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and his mighty army, in to sack Jerusalem and to carry the people away captive. Well, this creates a new problem in Habakkuk's mind. He wonders, Lord, why are you doing that? <laughs> How can you use a more wicked and pagan nation than Judah, your covenant people? Yes, we're in bad shape, but they're in worse shape. At least we give lip service to worshiping the true God, but... 
the Babylonians are idolaters. And how can you use a more wicked nation than us to judge your own covenant people? Well, God gives him an answer in chapter 2. And last time we ended with verse 4, when God says, The just shall live by his faith. Here is God's answer. Habakkuk, I don't have to explain everything to you right now, but you need to keep trusting in me. Now that's not an answer that satisfies a lot of people today because we want answers. We want to know why and how long, but you know God has never promised to give us answers to all of our questions. He answers our why questions with a who answer. He says, instead of trying to figure it all out and get all the facts and figures, you just need to focus on me. You need to remind yourself of who your God is and trust that I am in control. You know, that's a very applicable lesson for us today. There's a pastoral value to the book of Habakkuk. And these messages that I've been preaching from this book are designed to have a pastoral benefit in your life that is to help you deal with some of your perplexities. You see, it's not an easy thing, is it, to live a godly life in an ungodly world, to walk the straight and narrow way in a crooked and perverse generation. And you say, Brother Mike, how do I deal with all of my perplexities? Well, here's God's answer to our perplexities. The just shall live by faith. And I think you would agree with me that's no small challenge. The challenge to living by faith in an ungodly world, that is, this idea that we're living with a sense of delayed gratification. There may not be an instant answer, there may not be an instant solution, but we're trusting that God knows what he's doing and that his time is the right time. That's what it means to live by faith. The challenge arises from the fact that the life of serving the Lord is a countercultural kind of life. You and I as believers, dear friends, are in the minority in this world. You know that, don't you? And the overwhelming majority of people around us are traveling a completely different path than we are. They're living a totally secular kind of life. And underlying Habakkuk chapter 2 is this important question, how can God's people live a godly life in a culture that is dominated by ungodliness? That's the point of tension that you and I face this morning. Notice that tension is expressed in verse 4 of our text in terms of a contrast. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but... Now that connecting word, but, indicates here's a contrast. Here's the antithesis. His soul which is lifted up, talking about the Chaldean or the Babylonian. And if you please, if you want to personalize it, think of King Nebuchadnezzar, proud King Nebuchadnezzar. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but in contrast to the proud Babylonian, his soul is lifted up. Yet, he says, the just, here's the contrast, shall live by his faith. What he's teaching us here in this contrast between Babylon's proud sins and the humble faith of God's righteous people is that you and I live in a world that thinks differently than we do. Or let me say it like this, we should think differently than they do. Here's the only way you and I are going to survive life in a world that's under the curse of sin. It's by keeping our eyes on the Lord, living by faith. 
instead of getting caught up in the attitudes of the world around us. Here is Judah in Babylon, and Babylon is proud and arrogant. They're not trusting God. They don't care about God. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was God. But yet the believer living in Babylon must live with his eyes on the Lord, even though the rest of the world around him is going in a different direction. That's the contrast. That's the point of tension. And interestingly, this verse indicates that the root of all of Babylon's sins is the sin of pride. His soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. There's a verse in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 31, that highlights the pride of Babylon. God says, Behold, I am against thee, O most proud, talking to Babylon, saith the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. God says Babylon is a proud society. In chapter 2, verse 5 in Habakkuk, summarizes how that pride manifested itself in Babylon. Listen to this verse. Because he transgresseth by wine, God says about the Babylonian, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. What he's saying in this verse is that Babylon's sin of pride expresses itself in this desire to control the world. He's heaping to him all people. He's gathering unto him all nations. Babylon wants its empire to expand globally. Now we know that this is characteristic of political attitudes in nations around us. It's been the story of human history from the very beginning. That when a nation gets a little power, they want more power, right? So that their flag flies over all the world. When I was a boy growing up, we had a board game called Risk, in which, you know, you competed with the other players to try to take over their country. And whoever took over the world first was the winner of the game. It's the old king of the mountain idea that even the generation before me liked to play on a hill of dirt. You know, I'm the king of the mountain. I'm in charge. And mankind, in his pride, has wanted to control the universe. And Babylon, he says, is like that. His feet abideth not at home. He keepeth not at home. He's not content with a quiet family existence. But he gathers to him all people. You see how verse 5 in our text summarizes the pride of Babylon. He transgresses by wine, that is, he is intoxicated with his own pride, and he doesn't keep at home, he enlarges his desire as hell. In other words, the sin of pride expresses itself in covetousness. Somebody once asked a multimillionaire, how much money does it take to satisfy you? And his answer was, a little bit more than I have. And that's true, isn't it? We want to spread our influence. Now, may I say that the idea of world domination is not in its own right evil and ungodly. That is, this is my father's world. God made it, didn't he? And if anybody has the right to rule the universe, to rule the world, he does. And so the kingdom of God has as its goal, as its aim, to spread. We want to see Christ's influence as Lord and King extended and expanded. Do we not? 
We want to see new converts made. You see, God has people who are out in this world, and we want to see them come and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, be converted, to have a change in their thinking, to repent, and to confess Christ as Lord and devote their lives to serving him. That's really the mission of the church. We want to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified universally. The fact is, whether all men recognize it, he is the universal sovereign right now. You know that, don't you? John 17, verse 2, Jesus says, As thou hast given him power or authority over all flesh, that he might give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice that verse suggests that Christ has universal sovereignty. He has power over all flesh. He's the king of nations, but yet he is particular in his grace. Universal sovereignty, but particular or definite atonement. He gives eternal life to as many as. Now, even though he's the ruler of all, my friends, his people are a portion of the all. He has an elect. So he has power over all flesh. Who's the king of the universe today? Well, he's not in Washington, D.C. He's not in Moscow, Russia. He's not in uh, China. The king of the universe today is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac Watts put it like this in his great hymn, Joy to the World. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness. But the fact is, all do not acknowledge him as Lord and King. The kingdom of God is the people who have bowed the knee in submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens when a person is baptized. When you come forward to unite with the church, you say, I'm tired of living for self and like the world. I want to live for the Lord starting right now. He's the one who saved me, and I want to put Christ on in gospel obedience. That, my friends, is a submission, an act of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 says, after it speaks of his wonderful names, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, this child that would be born, this son who would be given, he says of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. I love that thought. You know when David reigned on the throne as king of Israel, he increased the territorial domain of the kingdom of God from 6,000 to over 60,000 square miles. David's reign expanded and extended. But even then, it was pretty localized into the Middle East, you know. It wasn't global. It wasn't universal. I'm telling you, dear friends, Jesus Christ reigns as king of the world right now. But only a minority acknowledges that and recognizes it. Does that make sense? God has many children in this world who are not bowing the knee. Here's the point of the message this morning. There's coming a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what is that day? That is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've telegraphed where I'm going with my message today. I've stated my point. Now let's explain the point and then we'll apply it. Let's cross the sea. Somebody once said every good sermon should cross the sea, S-E-A. State your point, then explain your point, then apply your point. So I've stated my point. I've given you the destination. I've shown you the pictures of where we're going. You see, I'm trying to paint this portrait. 
And uh, as colors are being added, I hope you're beginning to see what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Here's a man who's caught in the fray of confusion and perplexity right now because the people of God are in a very deplorable state. And he prays, Lord, what are you doing? Are you doing anything about it? Will you please revive us? And God says, I'm bringing judgment on my own people. And then Habakkuk wonders, Lord, how can that be? And how does that square with your righteous nature, your justice? And God says, Babylon will be judged one day, and you need to live by faith in the process. So that's where we're at now in Habakkuk chapter 2. I want you to notice the five woes that God pronounces on Babylon in Habakkuk 2, verses 6 and following. First, he says in verse 6, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. Now, by the way, you know the word woe is a divine curse, pronouncement of judgment that's coming. It's the opposite of blessed. When God says blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, that's an oracle of weal. But here's an oracle of woe. It's a curse. That is, payday is coming. You have this to look forward to, and it's not pleasant. Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his, and to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. He pronounces this woe upon their selfishness and sensuality. Babylon was selfish, and they were focused on the pleasures of the flesh. By the way, that's so true of our world. We're living in a selfish and sensual world, aren't we? Secondly, he pronounces a woe in verses 9 through 11 on their greed and covetousness. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. And then he pronounces a woe on Babylon's human exploitation in verses 12 and 13. Now, this sounds like a lineup of contemporary sins. Selfishness and sensuality. Greed and covetousness. And then human exploitation. Isn't this like reading this morning's newspaper as it talks about what's happening in the world around us? God says Babylon will be judged, and she will be judged because she's selfish and sensual. She's covetous. She is ready to step on someone else in order to promote herself. Human exploitation. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood establisheth a city by iniquity. That is, they don't care who is hurt in the process as long as the project is finished. They build a town with blood. Human exploitation. Do you see any of this in our world today? Do you see the rich taking advantage of the poor, using them just to get richer? You know, it doesn't matter how the little guy is hurt as long as I am prospered in the process. And then their addiction to pleasure, verse 15. Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest his bottle to him and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. They're addicted to pleasure. So they're selfish, they're greedy, they are unloving to their neighbor. They're addicted to pleasure. And then verse 19, woe, he says, to him that saith to the wood, awake, and to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. This is a curse pronounced against the sin of idolatry. And we're living in a greedy, selfish, unloving, pleasure-mad, and idolatrous world today. And these are the kinds of sins that bring God's judgment. God says Babylon will be judged 
Now Habakkuk says, Lord, your people need help. God says, I'm going to chasten them with this foreign country. And the prophet says, well, will they get away with it? God says, no, you've got to live by faith because Babylon's day is coming. And God has every reason to judge them. It was a wicked society. But if you and I are going to survive in a world that's headed for judgment, what is the key to survival? And the answer to that question is keeping a perspective of faith. You and I, my friends, though the world around us has gone mad, and God is not pleased with it, he will set all wrongs right in his time. In the process, you and I need to keep this perspective of faith. And the perspective of faith consists of these two great truths. We need to keep a perspective of faith in terms of the fact that God is in his holy temple, his current government. And secondly, verse 14, his coming glory. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now after this lengthy introduction, I've put all my colors on the palette. Let's start adding some detail now. I'm trying to paint a portrait this morning. Can you see it yet? Is it starting to take shape? Here's a world that's in disarray, but yet God is in control and his program is on track. The earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is sure to happen. You say, well, Brother Mike, it hasn't happened yet. That's why we need to live by faith. And God is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple You say, well, Brother Mike, I can't see that. That's why we have to live by faith. In a world that is selfish, greedy, unloving, pleasure-mad, and idolatrous, that's headed for God's judgment, you and I can be faithful to the Lord if we will live with our eyes focused on these two truths, his current government and his coming glory. His current government, verse 20, his coming glory, verse 14. Let's talk first about the sovereignty of God. And you see this great truth in our text. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now this is a precious text. And by the way, it is helpful for you and me sometimes to just stop in the mad rush of daily activity and remind ourselves of this fact. The Lord is on his throne. You ever just stop and say, take a deep breath, Mike Goins, because the Lord is in his holy temple. You know, they say when the flag flies over Buckingham Palace, that is evidence that the king or the queen is in residence. I'm telling you, dear friends, the king of the universe is on his throne. He's in residence. He hasn't abdicated his throne. He hasn't been kicked out of glory. All of the conspiracies of men in this world have not altered the sovereign rule of God to any degree. You know, Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Here's the story of human history. The leaders of men are trying to form a coalition, a summit, you know, a a G12 conference or whatever. The great governments of men, all the kings of the earth and the rulers are taking counsel together. They're having a roundtable meeting. Their goal is to try to overthrow the government of God against the Lord and against his Christ. Have you ever noticed how the decisions that are made by world leaders have an anti-Christian and anti-God bias? Have you ever noticed, dear friends, how there seems to be this revolt 
among humanity against God's right to rule. They say we don't want the Ten Commandments. There is a, a moral antagonism in the heart of men by nature. The doctrinal word for it is depravity that uh, despises God. You see, people say, I just want to live my life. Maybe you've heard somebody say before, I just want to be free. I don't want any restrictions. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, especially God. That's why I don't go to church, because the preachers is too preachy. Somebody said the best way to be a preacher these days is don't sound preachy. Well, I've never figured out how to do that. How can you preach without sounding preachy? But people don't want to be preached to. They don't want to be told what to do because the pride in our hearts, his heart is lifted up within him and it's not upright. The pride in our hearts, my friends, resists the idea that we're accountable. But you see, the God who made this world is in charge of it. And whether we like it or not, it's his football. He gets to make the rules. He's in charge, and we are his creatures, and we are the beneficiaries of so many blessings and privileges. Think about all that you and I enjoy in this world just by the fact that you're alive in this world. We get to breathe air. You know, I've never been sent a bill for the air that I breathe of you. I've never gotten a bill in the mail that said, you used this much last month, and here's how much you owe. I get to breathe his air freely. I get to drink his water. Now, men have tried to put a price on it, and I do have to pay a bill to the county or the city for the water that I drink. But, uh, you know, the fact is that if, if I didn't want to pay that bill, I could probably find some water somewhere that I could drink for free. I get to eat his produce. I mean, uh, apples and peaches and uh, plums and apricots and grapes, and I get to enjoy a, a nice steak and a baked potato and tomatoes. And I get my friends to enjoy all of the dainties and delicacies of life in this world. I have the blessing of companionship. I have the blessing, my friend, of being able to witness the beautiful scenes of nature. You know, we have some of the most beautiful sunsets here on the Carolina coast, I think, that anybody in the world has the opportunity to enjoy. And what a blessing it is. I, I walked out this morning, early this morning, and I heard... Some birds who also think that spring has arrived uh, singing a beautiful song. And you think about all of the privileges that we have in this world. God's been good to us. Is it wrong to expect that he would make claims upon our behavior? Seeing that he's given us life, that in him we live and move and have our being, is it wrong to expect then that he would claim our devotion and make prohibitions against us ascribing to an idol god or goddess the things that he's given us? I don't think that's wrong at all. But you see, mankind, because of his depraved heart, is in an ongoing war against God. The story of human history is man's long war against God. Man in sin is revolutionary. He's trying to launch a coup d'etat to overthrow the government of heaven. He says, I want to be free. I don't want to be told that I can't have other mates besides my marriage partner. I want to do as I please. Just let me be free. These Ten Commandments that say, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, are restrictive. But I want to tell you, my friends, true freedom is found in obedience and submission to the authority of God. True freedom. You've heard me use the illustration before about the locomotive. 
and asked the question, when is a train truly free? What would you think of a locomotive that said, I'm so tired of being confined to these two rails, these tracks. I want to strike out across that pasture. I would love to just jump the traces and I want to see the rest of the world, not just what is confined to these tracks. How long would that train be able to function? How far would it go if it jumped the tracks and struck out across the pasture? How far? Maybe 20 feet, maybe 50, depending on its speed, I don't know. But it would soon bog down and tip over, wouldn't it? Because a train is only free when it operates within the parameters in which it was made to operate. And you and I, as creatures of God, are only truly free when we are submissive, when we operate as God created his world to function. Now, God has said that you're to be content with your marriage partner. God has said that you're to watch what you say and not blaspheme. God has said that you're to observe worship at least one day out of seven. You're to honor him and remember where all your blessings come from. God has said, my friends, that you're not to take something that belongs to somebody else. And you're not to ruin or malign their reputation. And you're not to take away their lives. Thou shalt not kill. Those are his regulations, his laws, his rules. You say, well, we're not under the law anymore. We're not under the curse of the law. <laughs> That's for sure because of Christ. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The broken law has been repaired. It's been satisfied by Jesus Christ. Neither are we under the ceremonial law. But my friends, the moral law of God is still intact. It's still wrong to lie. It's still wrong to cheat. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong, my friends, to steal. And those are God's rules. You see, he's in charge. He's in residence. The king is on his throne. Now, sometimes in the mad rush of daily life, especially during tourist season here in, on the coast, when traffic is backed up and people are cutting me off and, you know, the whole world is under construction, isn't it? Now, whoever invented those little orange barrels, I bet they are multimillionaires today. I mean, I wish I'd have had that thought. But, uh, you know, because they're all over the place. And, you know, three lanes go down to one. That's a good time to stop and remind yourself the Lord is in his holy temple. <sighs> He's on the throne. I want to say to you today, dear friends, whatever's happening around you, don't forget that we trust a sovereign God. And the sovereignty of God is one of the most comforting truths in the scriptures. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight puts it like this. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Notice all three branches of government coalesce in him. He's our judge. There's the judicial branch, like the Supreme Court. The Lord is our lawgiver. There's the legislative branch, like the Congress. The Lord is our king. There's the executive branch, like the presidency. You see, all three branches of government coalesce in the one true God. He is all of it. And it says he is the governor among the nations. The governor among the nations. Who is the governor? Who governs? Whose authority is ultimate? God's is. And interestingly, the king of Babylon himself, we're talking about Babylon in the book of Habakkuk, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, learned this lesson about the sovereignty of God. Daniel chapter 4, verses 33 through 35 is probably one of the clearest explanations of divine sovereignty in all the Bible. Would you listen to this? Daniel 4, 33, Nebuchadnezzar has looked out over great Babylon, 
You remember that day that he went out one day out of his palace and he thumbed his lapels? And he saw the mighty empire that he had created. And he sees the hanging gardens of Babylon. I mean, they were, they were a spectacle. And he says, is not this great Babylon that I have builded by my might and by my power for the honor of my majesty? Sounds like the I key on his typewriter stuck. He just keeps pushing that I key, doesn't he? I did it by my might, by my strength, for my glory. And while the word was in his mouth, he lost his mind. God judged him with insanity. And for a period of seven months, maybe seven years, the language is unclear. But for a lengthy period, the king lived out in the pasture outside, walking around on his hands and knees like a common animal, grazing on the grass. And I've often thought that a foreign dignitary visiting the Babylonian palace might have knocked on the door and the butler answered and he said, may I help you? And he said, I'm here to see the king. He said, well, there he is over there in the pasture. That's him grazing on his all fours. Now, what would it take for a man to lose his grasp of reality to the point that he thought he was a, an animal? He ate grass like an oxen. His hair grew like eagle's feathers, the original dreadlocks. His nails grew like bird's claws. He's not practicing personal hygiene, not clipping his nails, not combing his hair, and his body is wet with the dew of heaven. He's out there all night. Even the dew settles on him. He's lost his mind. He's insane. But he said, when I blessed and praised the Most High, then my understanding returned unto me. Suddenly, it's like the prodigal son when he woke up in the hog pen. Suddenly, he has an awakening. And suddenly, he can see clearly that, look at me out here. He said, I'm not the king of the world. I thought that I've built it all, and I'm worthy of all this glory, and people adore me. I've, this is for my, my majesty and my honor. He says, the most high. Daniel 4.35 says, or verse 34 says, At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. My understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth, myself included, he might have added, are reputed as nothing. For he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Sounds like he's thinking rationally. He's thinking correctly now. For he says, I'm not the king. Jehovah, the Lord God of the universe, is the only true and living God. You see, the Lord is in his holy temple. That's a statement that reminds us that he is the current governor of the universe. So you say, who's in charge? We need a new president? Probably so. We need a new governor? We need a new mayor? Probably so. But you know, there's no human being who's going to solve all the problems. But I'm telling you, if we'll live by faith, we know that all the problems ultimately will be solved because we have one who's in charge right now, who's still on the throne, and nothing that happens down here can change that fact. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Three times in the psalm, Psalm 93.1, 97.1, and 99.1, it says, The Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. 
In other words, dear friends, God is on his throne. In the book of Revelation, at least a dozen times, the Holy Spirit through John speaks of the Lamb upon the throne. And that imagery of the throne is a reminder that he has ultimate authority, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is a reminder of the sovereignty of God. Therefore, our confession of faith today is Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth. Say, wherefore should the heathen say, notice the pushback from this unbelieving world. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. May that be our confession of faith. The just shall live by faith. Of what does that consist? It, it consists of this confession of the sovereignty of God. And by the way, notice the response, how humanity should respond to this truth of divine sovereignty. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, it's best that we zip our lips, put our hands over our mouth Job-like, and not dare to speak. Keep silence in terms of being respectful and reverent. You know, um, I was taught when I was growing up that when you're in the presence of important people or adults, you know, that you be careful not to speak too much. There's a time to speak, that's for sure, but there's also a time to keep silence. And there is a certain silence of respect. You know, a teacher in a classroom will say, okay, children, everybody be quiet. Because the lesson that she's about to teach, and she's the authority figure, is worthy of your silence. And there's a certain silence of reverence and respect. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. He says, Let not thy mouth be rash to speak anything, for the Lord is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. The silence of reverence and respect. Because he's the king and I'm not, I need to be reverent before him. By the way, that's an attitude that is increasingly rare, even in Christian circles, professing Christian circles today, reverence and respect in the house of God. Reverence. With reverence, let the saints appear. My beloved, there's still something to be said for this attitude of godly fear. Let us serve God with reverence and godly fear. Be silent before him. You know, a person that talks as much as a preacher does is in danger of the greater judgment. I mean, he, he's liable to make mistakes. And it's so much better for us to just listen and be silent before God because he is in his holy temple. He's the king and I'm not. And therefore, he's to be feared and respected. Secondly, the silence of readiness to hear his word. James 1.19 says, Let every man be swift to hear slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then he talks about receiving with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. When we come to the house of God, my friends, let's be ready to hear the word of God. It's best for each of us to be silent and to listen to what God has to say. Hear ye him, he says. As Cornelius said to Peter in Acts 10.33, we are all here before God, ready to hear whatsoever the Lord has commanded you to say. 
When we come to the house of God, my friends, let us come with the attitude of Samuel. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth, waiting for thy gracious word. And then keep silence before him, not only in terms of reverence and respect and readiness to hear his word, but the silence of humility, not boasting. You know, boasting is one of the greatest sins of the tongue in our lives. But Hannah said in 1 Samuel 2, 3, Speak no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. When we come before God, my friends, it's not time to showcase our own skills and ingenuity and talents, but it's time to say no more, my God. I boast no more of all the duties that I have done. I quit the hopes that I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Romans 3, 27 asks the question, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? The law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. And I want to tell you where the true gospel is preached, my beloved, there will be no room for man to take any credit or to boast. If we boast, let's boast in the Lord. Otherwise, let's be silent before him. He's the king. Be silent with reverence. Be silent because we're ready to hear his word. Be silent in terms of not boasting. You know, when the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And Lord, thank you that I'm not as this publican. He is boasting of his own righteousness. But the publican could not so much as lift his eyes to heaven. But he said one sentence and one sentence only. He smote upon his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Boasting has been excluded as he trusts the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then be silent before the king, fourthly, in terms of being submissive, not murmuring at the dispensations of providence in your life. Psalm 39.9 says, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because thou didst it. You know, the psalmist says, Lord, I knew that your hand was involved, and therefore I didn't speak, I didn't reply, I didn't rebel, I said nothing, I was dumb. I open not my mouth because thou didst it. That's the silence of submission, the refusal to murmur at the dispensations of providence. When Eli got the news that his sons were dead, Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. He didn't reply. He didn't rebel against it. And this is the attitude that Jesus taught us to exhibit when he said, we're to pray, not my will, but thine be done. Have you ever sung that hymn, thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be? Choose thou the path for me. Lord, whatever the path is, as long as you choose it, I'm submissive to your way, not mine. And then not only is faith a matter of laying hold upon his current government, but upon his coming glory. Verse 14 of Habakkuk 2 says, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, for the earth to be full of God's glory was God's aim in the creation of the world. When he first made the world, he made it for his own glory, didn't he? Revelation 4.11, For thy pleasure they are and were created. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made all things for himself even the wicked for the day of evil. God made this world for him, not for you or for me. You know, sometimes we get the idea that God's in heaven for me to use when I need him. The very opposite is true. He's not there for me to use. I'm here for him to receive glory, and you are too. The whole world should be full of the glory of the Lord. Do you remember when he made Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, be fruitful 
and multiply and replenish the earth, fill the earth with humanity. Do you know why? Now, the world is already a showcase of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. But you see, man is the pinnacle of creation. Man was made, unlike any other creature, in the image of God. He's God's image bearer. And God wants Adam and Eve to fill the earth with his glory, with human beings. But you know what happened? Sin encroached and marred the scene. Sin encroached on the lovely scene. And now this world is not filled with the glory of the Lord. The knowledge of God is very rare in this world. Instead, this world's filled with darkness and ignorance, with the woes of selfishness and greed and covetousness and idolatry and human exploitation and addiction to selfish pleasure. And I want you to notice verse 14. Here's a verse right in the very middle of these five woes. While he's saying, woe to Babylon, woe to them for this sin, woe to them for that sin, he says, but the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What he's teaching us here, my friends, this assurance of God's future glory is that his purposes are on track. His program has not been sidetracked. There is glory to come in the future. Indeed, the earth shall be filled. Notice this language of certainty with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The, the end is not in question. He's declared the end from the beginning. He's told us how it's all going to end up. I'm telling you, the devil's not going to win in the end. The Lord will be triumphant and victorious. And faith reminds us this morning that you and I do not participate in a losing cause. Jesus Christ will be glorified. He will get the last word. The devil will be put under his feet. Every enemy, even death, will be put beneath his feet. My beloved, we are on the winning side. So the earth shall be filled. Today, as part of the church, we long to see the kingdom of God expanded and extended. We say, let the nations be glad. We want to see the name of Jesus Christ honored and glorified from sea to shining sea. Like, you know, the British said, the sun never sets on the British flag. The, the empire of Great Britain wanted to colonize the whole world, and they had made such gains that in whatever time zone the Union Jack was flying, the sun never set on the British flag. The kingdom of God wants to grow like the little seed that grows into a mighty tree, the mustard seed. Remember the parable that grew until the fowls of the air or like the little leaven that was hidden in a loaf and it leavened the whole loaf. There's a, a desire for growth and progress and domination. Jesus Christ deserves to be glorified. But I'm telling you in all candor, our experience in seeing the kingdom of God grow is marginal at best. It's, we have only sporadic victories, don't we? We see, have a convert here and there. But you see, one day when Jesus returns, the second coming of Christ, every knee will bow to him. The kingdoms of men will then, every king will have to dismount his throne and take his crown off of his head and cast it at the feet of King Jesus and say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. In his times, he will show who's the only potentate king of kings and lord of lords. That's on God's program, his timetable. In contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's mighty empire that was so riddled with sin and doomed to judgment, King Jesus 
my beloved, occupies a permanent throne. His dynasty, his empire, his kingdom is characterized by righteousness. So here's the question this morning. How does God answer our perplexing questions as we're trying to make sense of this world that is in such a state of disarray? He reminds us that we must live by faith, trusting in his present sovereignty and looking for his future glory and victory. This world is headed for judgment, dear friend. But our sovereign king will triumph at last, and faith lays hold upon that truth. The just shall live by faith. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. Keep silence before